You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. First off, come to you in fear and trembling <laughs> before the Lord. One, because I take, as we all should, take the word of the Lord uh, not lightly. Uh, and my, my hope, yeah, I do need to step back. Okay, let me step back. All right. Uh, yeah. Fear and trembling before you. Uh, like, like Ty said, I got a call, got a message from Joe about 8 o'clock in the morning yesterday saying, hey, can you cover Sundays? I guess I'd love to. Amen. I'm not so little to. So, <laughs> so I, I, I really treasure the time, uh, and I really enjoy it, and it's an honor and a privilege uh, to do this. Um, but yeah, I come before you. <laughs> Lots of fear this morning. <laughs> uh, I, I, <clears throat> holy fear, Lord. I um, also just want to thank Everyone that serves here, um, this, yeah. this body could not function without everyone taking part and doing their part to help make this body healthy and thrive and successful. And so I just want to say thank you. Yeah. Uh, I know it takes a lot of extra time on Sundays or on a Thursday to, to pour into it, into this body, but it, it's, it is. As you know, it's so worth it yeah. uh, to be able to bless the, the people here, bless the children. Uh, and it's just uh, incredible. So, so thank you. Thank you, everyone. From There's so many things. I'll miss it, so I just carte blanche everything uh, that you do. So yeah, <clears throat> we are continuing on in our series of foundations as we look at the historical narrative of the book of the beginnings of Genesis. So if you haven't been with us recently, first off, I want to welcome you. Uh, we are now going to be in chapter 21 of Genesis. So the handouts that you do have are not mine. Those are Joe's from Thursday. And I think it, just, it, it also just kind of a nice, beautiful picture of the awesomeness of having a team, of having a plurality of elders here. Uh, each of us are gifted differently, uh, and God has given us different viewpoints on things. And so what I'm going to present this morning is uh, different than what Joe did on Thursday. So I'd encourage you, uh, if you haven't, to, to take a listen to that message. Uh, it should be posted online, uh, I believe. But if you haven't been with us uh, recently, I want to give you a 60,000-foot overview to help catch you up. So Genesis begins with the story of creation and how God created mankind, spoke everything into existence. Man then decided, hey, I want to be like God, and sin entered into the world, which resulted in a flood of God cleansing the land. People scattered. They came into Babel and Babylon. They all thought, let us be like God. And God scattered them out around from that place, confusing their language. In the next chapter, very next chapter, after everyone has been scattered out, we see that God, in his grace, in his grace, chooses a man, Abram. And now we have the story of the life of Abraham, starting from Genesis 12 all the way through 25. And we are now in the very midst of the life of father of faith, Abraham. And we have just read, we've read about the promises that have been given to Abraham by the creator of the universe, the God of Scripture. And it's two things. He's been given a promise of the land, and he's been given the promise of a son. And the word of God that we have really is a miracle that we have it in our hands this day. 
that we have it in the English language. And it is stunningly marvelous. It has such depth that we will never be able to mine all of it in our lifetime because it comes from the Eternal One, the God of all creation, so utterly magnificent is He. And my prayer is that we, and my hope and prayer is that we will all fall in love with the Word of God, that we desire to be in it each day, to search the depths of His perfect Word, too long for spending time with him in his word, to be like David, as he said in Psalm 119, that I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And so as you begin this chapter, in chapter 21, we have some very beautiful use of language, which should cause us to pause and consider what has actually led up to the point of this narrative. Because if we just take chapter 21 out of its context, we've got a proof text. And so in order to understand the text, we want to make sure we have context. So Abraham, in the previous chapter, attempted to lie to this fellow named Abimelech about who his wife is. For he told Abimelech that his sister is not his wife. And prior to that, in Genesis 19, we have the record of Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot's daughters attempt to keep mankind around through having children with their father. In Genesis 18, we have the promise of a son, a son that would be born to an old woman, Sarah, and an old man, Abraham. So these last three chapters of Genesis have occurred probably within a 12-month time frame. And so that is the context that leads us up to chapter 21, verse 1. And so... Let us read. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. So chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. I want to camp out a little bit on this one first. This is not just a typical record of birth. As we see, normally you see so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, and that's just the record. Here we have a very long record of this because this is the great, amazing miracle of a birth. What we have here is God's personal name that's revealed to us as Yahweh. If you notice in your Bibles, you may have a, a capitals L-O-R-D. And again, that is God showing us and revealing to us his personal name. And it's given to us twice. And in this very first verse, twice we are given truths about who he is and what he has done. For he has said... And he has promised. But what is this promise? And what is it that he had said? Recall that God told Abraham and Sarah about this promise twice. Again, back in Genesis 17 and chapter 18. The birth promise to an old woman and an older man. But notice two other things also in this verse that God did. He visited Sarah. Here we have God taking the initiative to visit his people and provide the fulfillment of his promise. And what is so wonderful from our viewpoint now, as we stand on this side of God's redemptive plan, that in this viewpoint we can see that there is a connection to the Messiah. There is a connection to Jesus Christ. For it is through his anticipated birth that there also was a visitation. And Luke chapter 1 says, 
and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. We will see as we continue on through this narrative other types or shadows in the events in the Old Testament that point ultimately to one individual. They all point to Jesus Christ. For there are types, pictures, and shadows of Christ. They're all throughout Scripture. Because it's all about him. Amen. That's right. And again, we'll see many examples of this as we go through this narrative. Verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Woo! <laughs> it's a boy! <laughs> I mean, this, we should get so excited about it. I mean, this is the incredible birth announcement. Finally, yeah. finally we have the birth of the promised child. 25 years of waiting, 9,000-some days yeah. of waiting. Wow. And notice what it says here, of which God had spoken. That's right. This should draw us back to Genesis 18 when God spoke and again referred to this appointed time twice. Hopefully we're catching on this idea of doubles and, yeah. and two times. Genesis 18, 14. Right before the account of Sarah's laughing, we have Yahweh telling Sarah, is there anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Again, notice the mention of time twice. It should be pointing to us. It should be directing us to make sure that we are fully aware of what is occurring on here, that we should be expectant of something great. And what we have here, here in Genesis 21, is perfect fulfillment of the word of God. And this speaks to God's character in which we should really all should take great comfort in, especially in trying times. The fulfillment of God's word in his word that he fulfilled, it all speaks to his faithfulness. His, a really fancy word, immutability, that he does not change. That's right. He doesn't say one thing and then do another. Thus, he can be fully trusted in every single aspect of our lives. Amen. God, by his word, it speaks to the fact that we can have full assurance that every single word that he has spoken in our scriptures, that it is absolutely true. Because these are the very words of God, breathed out by him and captured for us to learn about who he is, what he is doing, and what he will do. There are so many promises in scripture. We will not cover all of them this morning, but let me remind you of a few. The promise of the Messiah, the skull-crushing redeemer seed that's promised to us in Genesis 3. There's the promise of salvation that's given to us, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the promise that he will be with us to the very end of the age. So reading God's word and being knowing of it, can he be trusted? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Should we place all of our trust in him as a result of this? Yes. Absolutely. God's trustworthiness should be part of our anchor of our faith in him. Mm -hmm. And as we place our hope in him, we can be certain that he will stay true to himself and to his word. 
And as we place our faith in him, depending upon him for everything, our love for him will grow. And ultimately, our desire to obey what he has called us to do should increase as well. So brothers and sisters, do not settle for anything less than what God has given to us. Meaning that the word of God that we have, we can depend upon it for the comfort of our souls in times of distress and in times of joy. We can depend upon it to confirm the future events that will occur prior his return. For as believers, let us not take for granted the fact that we have this. We have this written. I'm sure most of us have multiple versions at home. We have thousands of them available to us on our phones. Don't take it for granted, please. In verse 3, Abraham called the name of the son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Here we have Abraham is obeying what God asks him when he told him what he should name his son. Because, why would he have done this? Because he believed God. He has already fully put his faith in the one who had called him to a place that would be shown to him. And again, notice the double statements here in verse 3. Was born to him and bore him. Reiterating the significance of this promised child. The name of the son, whose name means laughter. For this truly is a joyous and miraculous result founded solely upon the grace of God and as a display of his steadfast, faithful love for mankind. And it's through this son Isaac, the son of Abraham, through whom many nations and kings and people will follow, the one through whom the Messiah comes through. The gospel account, according to Matthew, begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac is listed within the family line of Jesus. And again, it is solely based upon the grace of God. Genesis 21, verses 4 and 5 continue saying, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Again, Abraham is faithful and what he does by marking his promised son as part of the people of God, the covenant people, through the permanent marking of the flesh. The statement about Abraham's age is given again to show us what the miraculous nature of this birth is, of this promised son. The last mention of his age was back in chapter 12, where we are told he's about 20, 75 years old when he heard of the promise of the land. And now the birth of the promised child has come, at the very exact moment, Yahweh said, 25 years of waiting, 14 years after waiting after the birth of Ishmael. The author of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 6, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Two unchangeable things. These are the two promises given by God to Abraham in Genesis 12 and here in 21. The promise of the land and the promise of the son. Again, the birth of Isaac was truly miraculous. For Isaac is a type or a picture that points to another. To a better son of the promise whose birth was also 
miraculous. For the birth of Isaac is just a type or a picture of the birth of Jesus. Both of these births were miraculous. Both of them were promised, both after a period of delay for the promise to be fulfilled. And in the delay, both these births came at the right appointed time. Both of these were by the grace of God, and both of these resulted in great joy. So take strong encouragement, church, and hold fast to the hope set before us. For our hope is the promised one, the Son of Man, the one who came in the line of Abraham, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Continuing on, verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The wonders of God's word. It is so rich and it's so full. Who did this work? Who is the one that opened the womb and allowed life to be created in a woman who was 90? God absolutely did it. And Sarah testifies to this truth. In verse 6, we have Sarah, whose name means princess. We also have reference to Ishmael, the one who, whose name means God hears. And more importantly, we have reference to the promised son, Isaac, whose name means the laugh. So with this in mind, let's read verse 6 again. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. The emphasis on the word laughter, which most of us did. You guys are fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament by laughing over <laughs> It all points to the continued significance of this most extraordinary birth. It's God who did it, and everyone else will acknowledge it through their laughter, as we've just did, as they proclaim the goodness of God through this birth of the promised son, Isaac. In verse 8, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Not only has the son of the promise come, but something to celebrate. But now he has reached an age, probably they say between three and five years old, in which he has passed through that danger zone for, the, for infants. And it's now time to celebrate the heir of the promise. And verse 9, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. In verse 9, we're not told exactly what the, the laughing is that took place between Ishmael and Isaac. It is worth noting that when we look at Scripture, it, helps com it does comment on this. Scripture is the best commentary on itself. Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, when referencing this episode, compares the circumstances of believers to this event between Ishmael and Isaac, when he says, But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. And so also it is now. So notice what Paul calls it. He calls it persecution. So the one who was born out of an attempt of the flesh, Ishmael, the son of a bondwoman in an attempt to fulfill the promise of God, is mocking the one of the promised son given through grace and the Spirit. Sarah, in seeing this take place, tells her husband to cast this woman out. 
And notice in this, in this record, the proper names of neither Hagar nor Ishmael are used, either by Sarah or Abraham throughout this section. But what they do use are the words of a slave woman and the son of a slave, pointing our attention to the one who is of prime importance here, it is the son of the promise, Isaac. And verse 11, And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of a son. We are not given the exact response by Abraham. But Abraham had this phrase, this phrase, very displeasing, proves to us that it has quite a significant clue what most likely he had felt. In verse 12, but God. But God said to Abraham, do not, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Be not displeased. Again here, God is acknowledging what Abraham is experiencing and what he feels. For those that feel that God isn't aware of your feelings, take comfort in knowing that he does. He cares for you. He knows you. He knows you far better than you even know yourself. So do not be afraid nor ever embarrassed to share your feelings with the Father. Because of the boy and because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. In God's response to Abraham, we see multiple promises given. Through Isaac, the offspring will be named. This is the most significant one here. And Paul picks this up in Romans 9 when he's talking about the promise that comes out of God's grace in his choosing Abraham and then through his child Isaac. When Paul says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, and he quotes Genesis 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The children of the promise, they are the ones, those that believe in Jesus Christ, they are the children of God, the children of faith that can be counted amongst the children of Father Abraham and Sarah. And all of this, all of this was done through grace alone. The grace of God, that means that getting something that we do not deserve. We do not deserve to be included in this family of faith. But it is very, through the very grace of God that he places us in it. And the fact that it's not our own doing, there's nothing that we could do or say within ourselves that could even accomplish this. And this really is an important aspect of our walk with the Lord. Paul tells us in his letter, to, again, to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 4, he tells us that the bondwoman represents the covenant of the law, and the son of the bondwoman represents sons of the law. So being a bondwoman and a son of a bondwoman neither can bring or offer freedom right. to anyone. As long as you are under the law, you may, may, you may live, but really only death can deliver you from that bondage and offer you freedom. There was a death that was done on our behalf, one that we can accept. That was the death of Jesus Christ. For you see, Jesus died to set us free from the penalty of death in eternal separation from the Father. If you accept this and believe this, the Son sets you free. 
and you are free indeed. So see what the death of, the, of Jesus Christ did on our behalf. As believers, we are not sons of the bondwoman, but the sons and daughters of the promise. If we were not to cast out that proverbial bondwoman, our natural desire would be to try to seek liberty within ourselves. And usually, this is found in some form of legalism. Trying to do things or not doing certain things explicitly for the sake of trying to appease God through a performance. It is completely devoid of a relationship with the Father. But it, we're doing it as a means to appease our conscience. Legalism. Sorry, I just skipped all. Legalism is, de- is declaring, is stating that what Christ accomplished on the cross, his death for us, wasn't enough. If you have found yourself bound to rules, trying to appease God, if you find yourself that you're constantly looking in at yourself, constantly being introspective, yearning and trying so hard to be better, I would encourage you to refocus. Focus your eyes on who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy thus set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you don't consider yourself a child of God today, meaning you have not yet accepted the free gift to be part of his family, today is the day. Don't let this day pass you by. Because we have no idea when our time will come, when we will pass over that threshold and come face to face with the everlasting one. Getting back to chapter 21. Let me skip before I continue on. So accepting that, believing that Jesus Christ died for for your sins. He paid the penalty for you. And accepting that, that there's nothing on your own accord that could satisfy God's righteous and holy standard. If you believe that Christ accomplished that for you on the cross, raising three days later, believe in that you're part of the household of faith. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's continue on. Getting back to our passage here in 21. um, The other promise here in verse 12 is that both sons will be a nation. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be made. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. God is the one who forms nations. God is the one who places authority into power. And we should notice what it is that God is telling Abraham to do to listen to his wife and do as she says. And in this case, the response of Abraham, we see, is done in faith. Because observed through obedience, as we read here in verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and the skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So early on in the morning, Abraham rose after God speaking to him, made provisions for the boy and Hagar. The word used here that we see for child, that's used for Ishmael, seems to point to the interaction between these two parties. For Abraham is transferring his firstborn, Ishmael, who's probably about 14 years old at this point, 
to Hagar and is now sending them out. And we will, Lord willing, next week come to the account of God telling Abraham to do something with the son of the promise. So come next week to see what, that ha what happens there. For if Abraham is not able to obey God in what he is asking him to do with the son of the slave woman, how much more difficult will it be to obey God when God asks Abraham to do something with the son of the promise? So come next week, or Thursday night, to hear what will happen. Our passage continues. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Again, such incredible wordplay in this scene. Recall Hagar is the one who called God El Roy, the one who sees. She doesn't want to see. She doesn't want to see her child die. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God appeared to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. God heard. Yeah. Once again, another example of a gracious and loving response of, from God. Yeah. In distress and in misery, in their time of affliction, God hears them. Notice now who has entered into this narrative. We are introduced to the angel of God, or he appears again. This is In this same instance, we will see that this person the angel of God appears in the next chapter. For we see that as God himself, as God directly responding to Hagar. And instead of the, using the noun slave woman that's been common in this narrative, he uses and calls her by her name, Hagar, her personal pronoun, which means to take flight. Again, Hagar finds herself out in the wilderness, just like she was back in chapter 16. But she is told to fear not for the voice of the boy, for God has heard. Again, this points directly back to the meaning of the name of the boy Ishmael, which means God listened to your affliction. Wow. So not only does God hear the boy, but God also knows where he is. Again, pointing to God's omniscience, the all-knowing one. God says, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, and I'll make him into a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. The angel of God, again, understood to be God, and not just some messenger sent from heaven. For we will see that he, the angel of God, says, I will make Ishmael a great nation. Again, recall it was Hagar who called the Lord God, the one who sees. And here he is opening up her eyes to see something that probably was already there. And so she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. Again, notice that God doesn't even use the name Ishmael. But God was with him. Since he had promised Ishmael that it would become a nation, that he would be a father of 12 princes. And God always, again, is another example of God keeping his word. And he, Ishmael, grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And that concludes the narrative about Ishmael, the rejected son, the son of a slave woman who marries an Egyptian whose hand was against everyone and everyone was against him. This type of interjection into the 
into the narrative. Again, points to the wonderful character of God. Well, we get a glimpse within this narrative of one individual who is not part of the whole promise, but yet God is with them, even though they're not part of the focus of this wonderful plan of redemption. That God has a part, God had a part, had Ishmael as part of his plan for mankind since even before the foundations of the earth. So as a takeaway for this first section here, for us as believers, James in chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The types of trials that you are going through should drive us to Christ, to the one who hears us, to the one who sees us, to the one who keeps his promises, who is trustworthy. It is through us, exercising our faith in him, not in a dutiful way, not in a legalistic way, but in true love and adoration of him, so that we will remain faithful to God over the long haul. For that is when steadfastness arrives. And as steadfastness comes, then we aim to be made whole or complete, not perfect in terms of being without sin. For in this age, in this life, we will always have sin around us. For when we see Christ, though, in the end, when we see Christ face to face in the very presence of him, the very presence of sin will be removed. But even though we'll never be perfect in this life, our standards should never be lower than what God has called us to be and to do. We always should be aiming for that goal of always loving the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. I'm just looking at the time. Come to the final part of chapter 21. We good? Yes. All right. Keep going. All right, the third part of chapter 21 really is an interesting interchange between Abraham and Abimelech. And it seems to form a bookend to this section that we were just reading, where the king of Gerar, recall this is the one that took Sarah as his wife back in chapter 21, now ends here in chapter 21. This third section begins with the phrase, at that time. And it's thought that this section takes place at the time of this feast, that they're celebrating the weaning of Isaac. For these individuals could have been invited guests, hence there's no explanation of their arrival on the scene. So at that time, Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. For as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Keep in mind that Abraham is still a sojourner in the land. He has been promised the land by God, but he does not own or claim any portion of it. Abraham says, I will swear, in verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech, Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know what's done. Who has done this thing? You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Here we have literally a cutting of an agreement. That's what a covenant to cut and make an agreement is, or to make a covenant literally means. See, these sheep and oxen were provided. 
they were cut in two, and the two would have walked arm in arm, agreeing to the terms, which is not really is not captured for us in the text. But as they walked through the cutting of these two animals, when they got to the other side, they would state that if either party does not follow through on their end of the agreement, let them be like the animals that we just passed through. And this was made in order to secure a, a peace treaty, in a sense, with not just these two men, but their descendants as well. Continuing on, verse 28. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven lambs, ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Versheba, because they're both of them swore an oath. It comes to a little surprise to us then what the town of Versheba means. It's a well of seven. If you notice in this portion, each of the men who cut the agreement are named seven times each. Seven lambs in the place of well of the seven. Again, name places in Scripture are not arbitrary. Nothing in the events recorded in the Scripture are arbitrary. So each time that we see and read about the name Versheba, we should recall this event. At the close of this chapter, we have the record that Abraham called there in Beersheba and called on the name of the Lord. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. God called on El Olam, the everlasting one. He's calling Yahweh the everlasting one because he is the one who promised the son. And Abraham now has it. Abraham was promised a land as part of his everlasting covenant with God, and now he has a place to get water and to claim as his own. And he calls God El Ochlam. Let us also know God as the everlasting one. For just as the prophet Isaiah exclaimed, Have you not known, have you not heard, Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Our, our chapter ends here with a little phrase saying, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham now apparently has rest. He's living in the promised land, still yet as a sojourner, one who resides in a temporary place. And he's not dwelling in the land looking for a, a permanent residence. He's not trying to set up shop and build his kingdom there. No, he is looking forward to a better country. For the author of Hebrews tells us, but as it is, they, like Abraham, desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And I pray also that each of us desire that heavenly country, one that can only be entered in through faith. And I pray as we prepare to enter that heavenly country, that we will always call upon El Olam, the everlasting God, putting our trust solely in him, growing in our faith so that we will have steadfastness and being dependent upon him and his word in order that we may be complete and lacking in nothing. Amen?